That's an intro. If we could do that every time, that'd be great. Wow. Such a privilege and an honor to be here with everyone this morning. I want to say thank you to everyone for being here. I want to give honor and gratitude to Bishop and Pastor Kathy as they are, seems like enjoying Alaska, which I've been to Alaska once before and it's hard not to enjoy Alaska. And I, I'm just not going to lie, I was backstage there and I was praying. I was like trying to get ready to preach and then it hit me. Bishop's taking vacation in Alaska and a man and Jason are getting new cars. They got like a prophetic word about getting a car. Sometimes I just wish I had a prophetic word. It ain't even got to be about a car. Bishop's daughters, those guys are like prophetic word magnets sometimes, and it makes me a little jealous, honestly. I've, you ever been so desperate for a word that you're saying yes and amen to like a fortune cookie? Good things in your future. Yes, Lord. Right in Taipei. Get my blessing right here. Kung Pao chicken and Kung Pao prophecy. That, that witnesses with me on a deep level. Now, we're so grateful that Bishop and Pastor Kathy are able to enjoy some time away, time of rest and relaxation. We're super glad that Amanda and Jason finally got rid of that car that they were hitting. They needed a new car, y'all. I'm thankful for my team, pastoral team that's uh, supported me. I've heard from a lot of those guys today, even though they're out traveling. We're so grateful that our church has literally it has international reach. And so for those of you that aren't aware, a lot of our team is away today, but they're preaching in other churches and they're assisting pastors in our network to let pastors have a vacation. And uh, I, can't, I grew up in a small church and my dad as a pastor and vacation was never really on the, uh, on the docket just because you, you had to be in town every weekend for church. So um, I think it's so important for us as a church to support that part of what we do here and that you need to know this morning that part, by you allowing our team to be gone, you're blessing churches literally across America this morning. So I'm very grateful for that myself. And I want to say thank you to my lovely wife for uh, helping me fix my hair this morning and being my best friend. <laughs> yes, she literally does help me fix my hair. So uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, you can open up to the book of Acts chapter 9. We're going to read a little bit. That's all right with y'all. Uh, I don't know how long this will last. I got a timer back there, but I got like three pages. And um, this may not take long. We may be out of here in 20 minutes. Don't take that as a promise. We may be out in 45. I don't know. But I have to say, uh, this message really just came from me spending time with uh, some of my friends. You're really just talking about things, just talking about life. You know, Ashton, Malachi, Songo, uh, Shad, all those guys were just hanging out talking. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. They, so really, I have to give them credit for the message today because they say things like, oh, man, that's really good. I'm going to use that. And I like write it down in my phone. And then now I'm going to stand up here and act like it was my stuff. So ain't God good. All right, Acts chapter 9. I'm going to be reading from the Passion Translation. We're going to read a short passage and then we're going to read another passage in just a few moments. It says this. During those days, Saul, full of angry threats and rage, wanted to murder the disciples of the Lord Jesus. So he went to ask the high priest and requested a letter of authorization he could take to the Jewish leaders in Damascus, requesting their cooperation in finding and arresting any who were followers of the way. 
Saul wanted to capture all the believers he found, both men and women, drag them as prisoners back to Jerusalem. Lovely guy. So he obtained the authorization and left for Damascus. But just outside the city, a brilliant light flashing from heaven suddenly exploded all around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a booming voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The men accompanying Saul were stunned and speechless, for they heard a heavenly voice but could see no one. Saul replied, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus the victorious, the one who you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city where you'll be told what you are to do. Saul stood to his feet, and even though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. He was blind. So the men had to take him by the hand and lead him into Damascus. For three days, he didn't eat or drink and couldn't see a thing. If you don't mind, let, let's pray together just briefly. Lord, come and be with us today. Lord, give me the words to say and help me to speak clearly and accurately. Lord, I put my trust in you and trust in your word that it will do what it has always done, and that it will stir men and women's hearts so that they may be different. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So I'm going to talk to us a little bit this morning about Saul or Paul. So most of us know, but if you don't, it's okay, that Paul is a New Testament apostle. He wrote um, two-thirds of the New Testament. Uh, he's a brilliant mind, a brilliant scholar, a great writer. There's so much that we owe to him as a man and what he accomplished for the Lord. Uh, but before his conversion, before he became a Christian, he went by the name of Saul. And so as we're talking today, we may jump back and forth a little bit. I'm going to do my best to keep the names straight. But like any good preacher who gets excited, I'm probably going to mix and match a little bit. So if you hear Saul or you hear Paul, we're talking about the same person, okay? So look at your neighbor and tell him, say, Saul is Paul and Paul is Saul. All right, so let's look at who the Apostle Paul really is for just a moment. So like I said, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, and he has a brilliant, brilliant mind. And so what we do know about him is that uh, his major mission was that he took the gospel. Okay, back then, I'm not sure it was called the gospel as much as it was called the way. Okay, and so when you were a believer, when you believed in Jesus, you were simply called a believer or a follower of the way. And so Paul helped spread the message of the way. He moved from Jerusalem and he moved throughout the Roman world. And so his major mission, I believe, was that he helped to plant and build Jew and Gentile churches that were existent under the same roof. And that's very significant, not only for the reasons of race, but I believe that Paul had an understanding that the day of the Roman Empire was going to come to an end. And if Christianity was going to survive that time, it needed to help get out of the walls of the Roman Empire. It needed something that would transcend Roman thinking and the Roman way of life. And I'm so glad today that he was successful because the people that he ministered to the letters that he wrote, the message, it made its way literally from Jerusalem and from Asia Minor. It made its way all the way to the frontier of the Roman, Roman Empire, what was called Albion, Albion or Gaul, which is modern-day France and Germany and, of course, England. And so that's how most of us uh, came to come in contact with the way. So, you know, that is a major, major 
accomplishment. Now, it had a lot of bumpy, it had a bumpy ride after those times the gospel did, but Paul was successful in his mission. And we know that he even took the gospel all the way to Rome and he shared the message with Caesar himself before he was executed. And so he lived a, a truly magnificent life. God did amazing things. So he was a great guy. He was a smart guy, but he wasn't always that way. I believe he was always smart, but he wasn't always so amazing as we just detailed. So I want to tell you some about Saul, who Saul was before he became the Paul that we know today. And so he was raised in a world where he was indoctrinated with the Hebrew scriptures, and he was very good at that. The scripture says, and history says, that he became a student of the scriptures, and that his teacher was a man named Gamaliel. Look at your neighbor and say, Gamaliel. Not Gandalf, Gamaliel, okay? And so Gamaliel was one of the foremost teachers of his day. And Gamaliel was known for this one thing. He believed in the harsh treatment of apostates. And apostates are people who speak heresy and they say things about the Lord that are not true. And so his teacher, his mentor, taught him that the way you deal with heresy is that you kill the people who are speaking it. And there is a certain precedent for that in the law of the Old Testament. But I believe this. I believe that Paul was smart. I believe that he was full of zeal for the house of God, that he, was, he had a deep passion for the Lord, and he had a deep passion to see God's will done on earth. And so when he came in contact with Gamaliel, Gamaliel molded that passion, and he sent Paul on a path that was not so great. So he took, the, he took the zeal of Saul and he gave him bad ammunition. He gave him, he gave him bad language. And we might even say this, he gave him some bad theology. Amen? And so we have this uh, uh, young Saul. He is a, um, he's more like a lieutenant to the Sanhedrin. Everybody say Sanhedrin. The word Sanhedrin means to sit together. And so the Sanhedrin were literally a council that they quite literally sat together and they would discuss uh, legal and religious issues of their day. Now for ancient Hebrews, there is no separation of church and state. Let that sink in just a moment. So that means when you steal from the baker and when you speak heresy, those are both crimes that come under the authority of the Sanhedrin. And we know this from when Jesus was crucified. And so uh, Saul, being such a great mind, Gamaliel was one of the leaders of the Sanhedrin. So his mentor, his teacher was on the Sanhedrin. And so, of course, Saul was, um, we can almost say that he was their golden boy. He was the golden child. He was the chosen one who was going to help uh, save the Hebrew people from the pagan uh, ways of the Greeks and the Romans, who that culture and that thinking was so popular in their day. And so I believe that Saul believed so deeply that he had a mission that we must save Israel from herself. We must save Israel from being seduced by these pagan people who have taken over our land. This is a message that was very familiar to the Hebrew people. And so he was equipped with the knowledge. He understood the Hebrew ways and he also understood the Greek. He quoted many Greek uh, poets in his writing in the New Testament. Maybe you've ever heard, in him we live and move and have our being. That's actually a quote from a Greek poet. And so Paul, Saul, he was educated in both worlds. 
And he knew better than most how to navigate the ins and outs of everyday Hebrew life. He was the perfect candidate for when the Sanhedrin said, we have to do something about this new heresy that's cropping up in Jerusalem in the city surrounding. Can you believe what it is that they're going around saying? They're saying that the Messiah was a carpenter boy from this little town called Nazareth and that he did a few miracles that we heard about and then, he, then we killed him and then he raised from the dead and now he's gone and nobody's seen him in a little while. And so they're going around saying, this is what God is doing. This was the son of God. This was the Messiah. Then here's the thing, the Sanhedrin, we're particularly upset because they're blaming his death on us. And look, now hang on just a minute, Hebrews. Look at us. We wear the priestly robes. We go to church on Sunday. We know all the songs. We keep the Sabbath. We keep the law. We do all the things. How dare you come at us and say that we're wrong, believers of the way? Have you lost your mind? And so Saul went out into the world, and this is who he was looking for. He was looking for this uh, rebel movement that was going on in Jerusalem and the cities surrounding her. And they were believing that anyone could participate, Jew or Gentile. They were doing miracles was the word on the street. Some had maybe seen people get up out of things like wheelchairs or people who had been crippled could walk again. There literally thousands of people were coming. And here's what was so crazy. They believed that even women had equal standing in this thing. They talked about like the kingdom of heaven and like it's craziness. Who could believe that such a thing was possible? And so Saul was particularly upset when he found out that these things were going on in his city and that it was pulling his beloved Hebrew people away from what he believed was the best way. And uh, he kills many people in Jerusalem, and we even read about how uh, he condoned the killing of a man named Stephen. And so he'd been on the hunt for the ringleaders of this movement, and they're like fishermen and tax collectors and... Uh, maybe uh, we might use this word today, terrorists. Your New Testament says zealots. Those are people that believe that the Hebrews could take over the world by military force. Sound familiar? These were the people who made up the way. So how in the world could they possibly know what they were talking about? They weren't educated. They weren't trained. They were unqualified. I mean, whoever would think that God would give revelation to a fisherman? Who to thunk it? And so he's hunting down these ringleaders and he comes across a man named Stephen. And Stephen is brutally executed after he calls the Sanhedrin's authority into question. And the Bible says that we have this, um, this horrific scene of Stephen being murdered. And the Bible sets it up so that Saul is standing nearby and he holds the coats of the men who are going to do the stoning. So before they start throwing stones, they take their coat off, say, here, hold my coat. And he said, here, I got it for you. You get to it. And can you believe that these believers of the way are so fanatical that Stephen, with his dying breath, says that he sees this man called Jesus sitting at the hand of the Father. And that's what he says with his last breath. Killed lots of people in Jerusalem. The scripture clearly says that. And then he's on his way to Damascus to continue his work. So we could say maybe he crushed a rebellion in Jerusalem and he's on his way to Damascus to do the same because there were many believers there as well. And then Jesus knocks him off his donkey. 
here's what I like to believe is that Ric Flair didn't invent the suplex. <laughs> Jesus invented the suplex and the first time he tried it out was on Saul right off of that donkey. Just boom, right in the dirt. What's going on? It seems pretty harsh to knock Saul off his donkey and make him blind. But I personally believe that this was Jesus' mercy at work. Not just mercy for the believers that Saul was surely going to kill in Damascus. It was mostly mercy for Saul. Because we are held accountable for our actions. The things that we say and do, they do matter. And they do have consequences and they often reverberate farther than we think that they will. And so who Jesus was really trying to save that day was Saul. Like, Saul, you're racking up quite a body count here and we need to get you to stop ASAP. Because you won't be able to bear the weight of what's going to come from the things that you're doing. Has there anybody ever been glad that Jesus knocked you off your donkey? There's some real folk right back over in here. I was looking over here and it was like nothing. It, it went straight to the cameraman. These folk over here have been knocked off their donkey. I can't help but wonder myself if you keep looking around at your life wondering why things are not going any better than they are and it's because Jesus tried knocking you off of your donkey and you tried to get right back up on it and you kept trying to go to Damascus to go about your way and Jesus is saying, you need to pump the brakes, homie, because you're wrecking your life and you don't even know it. So sometimes when he gets in the middle of our life, it seems overwhelming. Why are you doing this to me, Jesus? I'm just out here trying to do what I thought was best. And Jesus is saying, I'm trying to save your life, Saul. And you need to slow down just a minute because who you're persecuting is me. Oh, wait just a minute. Isn't that what these believers say is that this man Jesus died for them? That he is one of them? They're one and the same? Maybe they weren't crazy after all. <clears throat> so after he couldn't see... He goes into Damascus. His men pick him up, and they move him into the city. They take him to this place. They, he's just chilling in this house. And the Bible says that he didn't eat or drink for three days, and he couldn't see. We know that. So here's what I think the Scripture's trying to tell us when he says that he didn't eat or drink. I think that Paul was in deep turmoil, deep, deep turmoil, because his entire worldview had been shattered. Everything he had thought was true, he just got a very bold awakening that what you thought was true is in fact not true, and that you thought you were doing things the right way, but actually you're not. Now, I want you to think this through for just a minute. Now, I don't want to be morbid, and I don't want to be insensitive, but you can go to a funeral of a family member, and it can be very challenging, but guess what you most of the time you do right afterwards? You eat. Because even though you're hurting, you're still at a place that you can keep going and you still got an appetite. Amen? So I think when the scripture says that Saul did not eat for three days, I think it's trying to give us a picture of how deep in turmoil he was. And so put yourself in his shoes for just a moment. 
You're, you know in your heart that your zeal is for God and that all you wanted to do was the right thing. And you had submitted to the process. You had submitted to the pathways that had been laid out in front of you. In fact, many of your forefathers had went before you and done the same thing. And so everything in you says, I'm doing things the right way. This is how it works. I'm serving God how he needs to be served. And then all of a sudden he shows up and says, no, in fact, you're doing the opposite of what I need you to do. I want to let you in on a little secret. Some of us were doing life, we're serving God in a way that we think this is what he wants. We think this is what he needs from me, but really you're doing damage to yourself and you're doing damage to the people that you think you're trying to help. And so my heart breaks when I consider how Saul would have felt when it hit him. He thought he was helping God by killing apostates. But now Jesus is real. He is the Son of God. There's no denying that now. And so if that be true, that means the people I was killing were innocent. And so I thought we were doing the church a favor. Really, I was killing it. Try that, try that on. And how does that feel? Could you imagine? I wouldn't want cornbread either. It takes a lot for me to not want cornbread, but that right there will do it. I can't help but wonder sometimes how many bodies we've left in the wake of our activities. And so here's the thing. Some of you may have actually killed people. That is possible. It happens. For most of us, we don't actually kill people in an instant. We kill them with our words and with our actions. You say, what exactly does that mean? It means like when you shake somebody's hand at church and say, God bless you, brother, and then you go to lunch and you have them as an appetizer with your mouth. Can you believe her? Look at what she had on coming in church like that don't she know whatever you know you know the things that you say and I know the things that I've said here's the deal we're all guilty of that they, could you see them up there in the altar worshiping on Sunday I know where they were last night they were posting all over snapchat that where they're at and what they're doing and who they're with how dare they come in the house of God and then act like everything's all right When you say things like that with your words, that's what I believe the Bible calls a transgression. You're attacking and you're killing people with your words, and those things do matter, and you will be held accountable for them. So I think about sometimes the bodies that we've left in the wake of our life. I know I've left my share of them. If, you, if we're going to be real in the house of God, I can't preach about not being real and not be real. I've left my wake, my share of bodies laying around and I've had to lay before God and tremble and tremble and we're going to come back to that in just a moment so you guys want to read a little more scripture yeah think about how devastated you would have been my goodness the weight of those innocent lives the guilt guess what you knew this they could stand you up and call you murderer and they wouldn't be lying see a lot of people 
We know they can say thing, mean things about us, but we can either disprove it or we can sort of hide behind anonymity. Like, you know, you can't really prove that about me. You don't really know. But here's what I do know is that if we could see us, how God sees us in the sense of that he sees and knows all the things that have gone on in our life, some of the labels that are in this room would shake you. Well, Paul's labels got drug out in front of everybody. There's no shame like public shame. So let's read some more. Chapter 9 and verse 10. So we got a messed up Paul. Now we're going to read about this young man. Living in Damascus was a believer named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling his name Ananias. Yes, Lord, Ananias answered. The Lord said, go at once to the street called Abundance and look for a man from Tarsus named Saul. You will find him at Judah's house. Your translation may say Judas's house. While he was praying, he saw in a supernatural vision a man named Ananias coming to lay hands on him and restore his sight. But Lord, let's just put the pause right there. God ever told you to do something, you say, but Lord, now just hang on a minute. Ananias replied, many have told me about his terrible persecution of those in Jerusalem who are devoted to you. In fact, the high priest has authorized him to seize and imprison all those in Damascus who go in your name. That sounds like a, Lord, here's a good reason why I don't need to do that. Verse 15, the Lord Yahweh answered him, arise and go. I have chosen this man to be my special messenger. He'll be brought before kings, before many nations, and before the Jewish people to give them the revelation of who I am. And I will show him how much he is destined to suffer because of his passion for me. Ananias left and found the house where Saul was staying. He went inside, laid hands on him, saying, Saul, my brother, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me to pray for you so that you might see again and be filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. All at once, love that, the crusty substance that was all over Saul's eyes disappeared and he could see perfectly. <clears throat> Immediately he got up and was baptized. After eating a meal, his strength returned. Within the hour, he, speaking of Saul, was in the synagogues preaching about Jesus and proclaiming Jesus, the Son of God. Now, if we can just for a moment, we've put ourselves in Saul's shoes, and it's been a sad journey up until this point. So he's laid up in Damascus, blind, and not had anything to eat. And I've never been to Damascus, but I've been to the Syrian border, and I sort of like looked across the border, and here's what I could guess, is that uh, one of the only things that would make being in Damascus worse would be being in Damascus blind and not had anything to eat. And as far as you know, there's no help coming until the Lord gives you a vision. Saul's in a very low way. And then the Lord moves on the heart of this man named Ananias. Look at your neighbor and say, Ananias. We don't know much about him. He's just a dude named Ananias that was a believer. Don't you love it when God just uses just people to get things done? And so the Lord says it himself. I got big plans for this dude named Saul. I'm going to use this dude to rock the world. But guess what God, God needs right now more than he needs a Saul? He needs an Ananias. 
So you know what we do so many times as a church? We think we're changing the world because we got our Twitter accounts figured out and we got the lights figured out just right and we're relevant. We're cool. We got our Gucci belts. I left mine at home. So I wore a shirt to cover up my white-tailed deer belt buckle that's under here, okay? Left my Air Jordans at home. I got on Vans. I rode a Harley Davidson here. This does better on the Harley than Air Jordans, okay? So you forgive me, but we think we've got the world figured out because we look like and dress like the world. But here's the thing. What really sets us apart and what really makes us relevant is that we are the kind of people that God can work through us and get a hold of people who their lives are dead and broken and busted and we help God work transformation in people's lives. What do I mean when I say transformation? I don't mean that they quit drinking and they quit smoking and they quit going to the club. Those things are fruit. Our business is the root. And so we connect you to Jesus. And he says, I'm not worried about your drinking right now. I want you to spend some time with me and let me, let me meet those unmet needs that are in your life. That that's why you're out in the club looking for sister or for homie because you think they're going to meet your need. Let me meet your need. You're, you're out here medicating your life with things and we want that to go away. And Jesus says, I will medicate your heart and your body will come in line. You don't need that bottle. You don't need that needle. You need Jesus in your life. Jesus wants to deal with the root. And we are the people that he wants to use to help facilitate that work. They won't come to us because we look cool or because we sound cool. They will come to us because when they're laid up blind in Damascus and their world has come crashing down around them and there's blood everywhere and it's on their hands, they're going to say, what do I do? Where do I go? Who do I talk to? We're going to say, come here, Saul. I'm going to introduce you to the same Jesus that knocked you off your horse. He knocked you off your horse but he's gonna do something in your life that will echo through the rest of history. That's who God has called us to be as believers of the way. Ananias didn't have a PhD in theology. Y'all forgive me, I got excited. I've been on vacation for two weeks and I hadn't done much cardio. He didn't have a PhD in communications. As far as we know, he wasn't a CEO. He wasn't like a big music artist. He's just a dude. That gives me hope, y'all, because I'm just a dude. Okay, am I speaking to any just dudes in the building today? Dudes or dudettes, yeah? <clears throat> just gonna touch on a couple of quick points. Something I love that Ananias did is when he went to Saul, he didn't be like, all right, Saul, Let's talk about the things that you've been doing wrong. Let that sink in just a second. We know that Ananias already knew. Saul's reputation had preceded him. Ananias knew what Saul had been doing, that he'd been killing people as fast as he'd get his hands on them. He didn't come in and say, well, hello, murderer Saul. Good to see you today. Bless the Lord. He didn't do that. You know what he said? Saul, my brother. Make it 
You don't have to be famous to change the world. Maybe your ability to change the world will be who you can find that you can call brother that the rest of the world is done with. I just want to point out at this point that the Sanhedrin, who Paul had been their golden child, they were nowhere to be found. The Sanhedrin hadn't sent nobody up there to check on Paul. We heard there was like a nuclear explosion on the road to Damascus. Are you okay? No, they're not worried about him. In fact, if you read on, in about 24 hours, they're going to try and kill him. You want to find out who the Pharisees in your life are? Go through a hard time and see who comes by to visit. I'm not talking about coming by to visit and be like, let's talk about all the things that you've been into, Saul. Let's, t- let's, let's, let's ham it up. No, those people are Pharisees because they're overly obsessed with justice. Real believers will come into your life and sit down beside you and say, brother, I'm here to pray for you. We ain't got to talk about it. We don't need to know. We don't need to go into the details. What God is doing in your life, really, that's between you and God. What I'm here to do is I'm here to help God do what he's trying to do in your life. There's a word for these kind of people, and they're called safe. When you are down at your lowest, you need someone who you can trust, someone who that their priority is not to solve the problems, but someone who their priority is to love you and to support you. My challenge to you today, Ananias, is, is when you come in contact with these people in your life, it's not your job to fix the problem. It's not your job to teach them all the ways that they went wrong. When someone's marriage is falling apart, they're already feeling the guilt and the shame of their marriage marriage falling apart. When they have wrecked their business, they already know, dude, we wrecked our business. This is not good. They already know what they need is someone to come beside them and say, brother, I'm here to support you in whatever you, whatever you need. I'm here to pray for you and walk with you. Amen. Man, I got excited again. <clears throat> What Saul needed more than anything was a brother. And what I, what I also love is if I was Ananias, here's what one of my fears would have had to have been. If, dude, if this dude has been out killing believers, and I am one, and I walk in there, okay, he's blind, but he got dudes with him. Who's to say that I don't go in there and Paul's like, psych, get him, we're going out back for a stoning. I'm just saying, where I grew up, that's how people do you. You got to watch out. So sometimes our ministry, uh, let, me, let me rephrase this. Sometimes when you really want to be a brother, it's going to cost you something. There may be a risk involved. You know, it's not fun to be associated with people who are known murderers, adulterers, partiers, swindlers, cheating on their taxes. Got super quiet right up here. I'm not saying y'all cheating on y'all taxes, but super quiet. Whatever the thing is, we don't like to be associated with that. So there was some risk involved. And here's what I love is that uh, Ananias, he had to go to the place where Saul was. They, they knew he was coming, right? So people knew that this Ananias guy is going in here to be with Saul. There was some risk involved. I'm going to give you three quick points. Okay, so here's our job. Our job is to facilitate transformation. And we've looked at this story, and we see that, in fact, that did happen. But there are, some, there are like three key points. And I actually believe that Saul and Ananias were traveling on the same road from opposite directions, and they met 
in a little room in Damascus. To get to that room where the transformation took place, they each had to do three things. And I'm going to give them to you really quick. They had to let Jesus wreck their worldview. We've already talked about that with Saul, okay? But let's talk about it with Ananias for just a moment. We all love God's mercy and compassion and forgiveness when he's pouring it out on us. We don't always like it when he pours it out on other people that our sense of justice says they don't deserve that. I'm just Ananias. I ain't murdered nobody. I cheated on my taxes a little. Okay. Cheated on my taxes a little bit. I did some things over here, but they weren't that bad. But Paul, Saul, is a murderer. It seems like that he should have to do something to pay for what he's done. We do this so much. And I believe if you really analyze your heart, you will do what I did when I saw how I do this and that you will fall on your face and repent. Because it says in the book of 1 John, we're going to quote him again in just a moment, but it says this, if you think that you don't have sin in your life, you are deceived. And it says this in the New King James, I believe, or King James, it says, and the truth is not found in him. Here's what that means. You are a liar. So if you walk around saying, look at my life, my marriage is okay as long as you don't see the screaming fights we get into after dark, my marriage is fine, my money is fine, my kids are fine even though you don't see how I stay up crying every night because they got problems, right? So everything in my life is fine. I tithe, show up at 10 a.m., how you doing? Good morning, brother. Everything is good. My life's not a problem. Yes, it is. You are a human being and you have sin in your life the same as the guy who been out shooting people last night. It's the same thing. So you may have left your gun in the car, and that's good. But there's a lot of other people sitting in here that you're eat up with. Oh, man, here we go. You are angry. You are obsessive. You have secret addictions. You are jealous and envious of other believers. Guess what? Those things are all sin. And so you have to let God wreck your worldview that everything with you is all right and everybody else is the problem. Let him wreck your worldview. Everybody say, wreck your worldview. So many times Jesus was doing this when he taught with his disciples. One very quick example. If you have faith as a mustard seed and you say unto this mountain, be thou removed and cast into the sea, it will move and nothing is impossible. What is Jesus doing? He's challenging their worldview about what faith is capable of producing in their life, right? And also with forgiveness. We know the story. Peter says, how many times must I forgive? And Jesus says, 70 times 7. That is a, a, a catchy way of saying until you forgive until. He's stretching Peter's worldview of what it means to forgive. So er, the step number one is let Jesus wreck your worldview. Everybody got it in your notes? Good. Step number two, choose to be humble. I'm going to say this slowly. You're going to want to write this down. It's good stuff right here. I got this mostly from my wife. There is a difference between humility and humiliation. Okay? The world, their way, the thing they desire to do is to humiliate. And so here's how that works. It works through shame and it brings hurt. And so here's how we humiliate people. You are a adulterer. That is a label that brings shame. Now you're humiliated out in front of everybody. And what did it do? It hurt you. Did you go home and go, man, I'm going to get my life straight. 
No, now you went home, so now you're an adulterer, and now you're super mad at the person who, you, who, who humiliated you, right? Humiliation does not work. We would be wise as the body of Christ to be very conscious and to be very intentional that when we speak truth in love that we don't humiliate people. My experience is this, most people who are doing wrong, they know. Sometimes they don't know exactly what's going on, but they do know something's not right. And you're not gonna help them by humiliation. Amen? Okay, so humility and humiliation are different. Here's how God works. God asks us to be humble. Humiliation does not humble you. Being humble is a choice that you must make for yourself. And so being humble works through grace and it opens a door for us to be healed. And so something that I love that Saul did when Ananias walked in was he did not push him away and say, get away from me, you crazy follower of the way. What did he do? He received the prayer. If I'm Saul, I need prayer. I need help. Get this stuff off my eyes and I need the Holy Spirit. And I love what Ananias did. He was not too big. He was not too important. He was not too scared of his own life that he literally said, I'm gonna risk my life to go in there and pray for this man that God has sent me to. How could Ananias have known the impact that Paul was gonna have? We're, that, that's part of the reason why we're sitting here today is because Paul became the man that God had called him to be. And I believe that Ananias shares in Paul's reward because he helped Paul out of the hole that he was in when he was in Damascus. And so look at what choosing to be humble could produce in your life. So the person that you, that the Lord is telling you to love unconditionally, you don't know what that person might be capable of. Let me lay you out a scenario. We're really hurrying. So the Lord tells you to love a brother or a sister that their marriage is in a hard place. It looks like it's not gonna make it. It's really, really hard. But let's say that God keeps the marriage together and now the children grow up with mom and dad. They're able to teach the children, look at what God did through our life. And then who knows what the child or the grandchild or the great grandchild may be capable of because the Lord used you to help facilitate his work in their life. Here's what I'm encouraging you to do, friend. In being humble, it will be almost impossible for you to see what God may be up to but he is up to something. And choosing to be humble can produce fruit that you could have never imagined. Amen. <clears throat> Last and final thing, both men had to choose forgiveness. I really feel, and I say this with all humility, I feel I'm at a place in my life now where I am mostly qualified to say what I'm about to say. I've given my whole life to the church. I've worked for churches, I've served churches since I was like 13. I've done it as a full-time employee since I was 19. And so I've always been a pastor's kid. I'm married into a pastor's family. I see how the sausage gets made, okay? I've seen things that'll rock your world. 
I've seen things that I, and heard things that I will only speak of in my prayer closet to God because it bothers me deeply. I've also seen miraculous things. I've seen things that just blow my mind, even, even thinking about them today. I believe that we have a bad misunderstanding of what it means to forgive. And it is the core tenet of our faith. You, so to quote 1 John again, if a man says he is in the light and yet he carries, uh, the Passion Translation says, hatred in his heart toward a brother, speaking of a fellow believer, then he is a liar and he's actually in darkness. Do you, do you want to know what John said just before he said that when he opens chapter 1? He says, I'm speaking to you about the things that I saw with my eyes and the things that I held in my hand, the life that I lived talking about his time with Jesus himself. He said, these are the things that I learned firsthand from Jesus. I was there. I heard it. I smelt it. I felt it. I was all there. And then that's what he chooses to say that he learned from Jesus is that when you say you're in the light, but if you have hatred in your heart for a brother, then you're a liar. Confession time in the house of God, that hit the preacher first. I got to check that every morning. Really quiet over here. I'm getting a little help right here. I got to check that every morning and say, God, help me today. Expose the things in my heart that I carry toward my brothers and sisters. When we were kids, our parents would make us forgive. Tell your sister you, you're sorry. I'm sorry, Hannah, that I hit you in the nose for busting my Legos. True story. And then what did you make sister say? Hannah, I forgive you. Now hug. We do the same thing in church. Forgive them for acting a fool. We forgive you, but we're really going to shut you out, not talk to you anymore. We're not going to trust you, and you're not good to serve on our team no more. Happens every day. That's not real forgiveness. Forgiveness is a choice that we must make. And I'm going to let you in on a secret. You know you're working real forgiveness when you got to say it first thing in the morning and you get mad again after lunch. Uh, boy, I'll whoop up on them right now. If I could get them in a back alley somewhere, just uh, give them what for, right? You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. You're smiling like you don't know, but I know you know. And what do you have to do? You say it again, God. And you don't feel it. You're so angry. Oh, you could eat briars. You're so angry. And you have to say, God, I am choosing to forgive that person for what they said and what they did to me. I'm choosing to forgive. It's not in your own power. It's by God's grace. When you choose to forgive, watch God cannonball down in the middle of your heart. He'll start ripping the pain and the worry and the fear out of your heart when you choose to forgive. Now, I know this. This is going to be my... I'm done right here. <clears throat> Some friends told me at dinner last night that Darius Daniels, a couple of days ago up in Tulsa, said what I'm about to say. Okay? So here's my, here's my caveat. I'm not stealing his story. We've been talking to the same little woman that he referenced in Tulsa. Okay? So let me tell you a little story. It's so hard to forgive because let's be really real. Our parents abandoned us our parents had affairs they spent our college money they wrecked our homes we had friends 
that abandoned us, said nasty things about us. We had boyfriends and girlfriends in school that did horrible, horrible things to us. And then that's not even counting the people that are outside, aunts, uncles, grandpa. You guys tracking with me right now? Trying to be really sensitive, but this is real talk. And then here's the one that really hurts my heart. The things that happened to us in church about how our pastors have abused us and let us down. It just, it's happened. I'm not coming after anybody, but it has happened. Church folk that we walk through maybe 20, 30 years of our life with, they, they turn on us and they betray us. Betrayal is a real thing. It is a real feeling. And it's not just when someone does something gross. It can be when you thought they were your friend and then you found out they've been running their mouth about you. This is our real life, and that pain is real. I'm here to tell you that your pain is okay. It's okay to be in pain. And you know what? There is blame. There should be blame. Those things that happened were not right. In Leviticus 16, there's a story. The day of Passover, we know about the Passover lamb, spotless lamb that was killed to take the sin. Sometimes what we don't talk about is the scapegoat. Leviticus chapter 16, it says this, and Aaron will take a goat... And he will lay his hands on its head and he will confess the sins of the sons of Israel. That word means iniquity, the reasons why we sin. He will confess that we're murderers and adulterers and that we're selfish and that we choose to meet our own needs outside of God. He will, put, he will confess that iniquity on the, onto the goat. And then the scripture says, And a man who is worthy will take the goat into the wilderness and it will never be seen again. And so what's that a picture of? That there will come a day when our iniquity, our sin, the blame for the reason why we did the things we did, that those things will be taken away from us forever, never to be seen again. Jesus is the spotless lamb, but he is also your scapegoat. And so you're hurting and you're in pain. You say, I want to forgive, but I got this hurt on the inside of me. Jesus is saying this. I'm the scapegoat. I don't deserve it. I don't, it, it, it doesn't belong to him, but he's saying, I will take the blame. Put it on me. The reason why your mama hurt you is because her mama hurt her and her mama hurt her. Iniquity goes back to the beginning. Who can say who's right or wrong? And Jesus said this, I'll say who's right or wrong. I'll step in and I'll take the blame for grandma, for mama, for auntie, for your pastor, for your friend, for your girlfriend, your wife, your husband. I'll take the blame for all of it. Just lay it on me and I will take it away from you and you'll never see it again. He's the spotless lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lily in the valley. But he's also my scapegoat. In the book of Psalm, if you don't know how to do that, go read Psalm. And David lays all the blame at God's feet. So here's what I want to challenge you with this morning. You say, man, I want to walk in forgiveness. I know I need it. There's brothers out there with my name on them that I need to let things go. Don't go to that person. Go to God. And you say, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know. Let me challenge you with something that the little lady from North Carolina told me. Is his blood enough? Is it enough? What if you're Saul and you look and you see the blood of innocent people that you've hurt? People that you misled and you did wrong. Can you forgive yourself? Is his blood enough to cover what you did? And you look at people in your life and the damage they've caused. You say, is his blood enough to cover what they did?
this is the linchpin of our faith. Do we believe that what Jesus did is enough? My prayer for you today, I'm not, I, I labored over what to do next. Still am a little. I don't want to open the altar for you today. Here's what I really felt in my prayer time that we should do as a body. If you know there's areas of your life where you need to let these things go to work and you need to inject what Jesus did into how you're thinking and feeling about situations. Jesus said, don't go pray in public like the Pharisees did. Go to your prayer closet. That doesn't mean you have to pray in your literal closet. It just means a secret place. Go to your secret place. And the God who sees and hears in secret, He will answer your prayers. So my challenge to you today is this. Go to your prayer closet. If this is real, if this is serious in your life, go to your prayer closet and you work it out with God and say, God, help me to walk in these things that have been talked about. Amen. Would you mind to stand on your feet with me? I'm going to pray very briefly. I've went too long. You've been an amazing audience. Thank you so much for being gracious towards me. If you can, just bow your head and close your eyes. You can lift your hands. Thank you for joining us today online. We're so glad to have you be a part of our congregation and our online family. Just to reiterate, just remember, we are having one service the rest of the year. So you can join us any week at 10 a.m. Make sure to always share and let people know about what we're doing. If you have any questions, drop it below in the chat back, the chat back, the chat box, and we would love to connect with you. We pray that you have an awesome week this week and that the Lord just surrounds your home with peace and with grace and with joy in everything that you do today. Thank you, Pastor Jordan, for an amazing word. We look forward to seeing you next week.